Vida Abundante welcomes you to our SoundCloud page. We'd like to invite you to download our app, available in the App Store and on Google Play. Also, you can now follow us on Instagram under the name Vida Abu or on Facebook under the name Vida Abundante Cicero. That's why as we start off this chapter, this is a predominantly a book that demonstrates God's judgment, God's anger, and God's wrath. And, and to talk about God's wrath is not kind of a popular thing to do. It's not something that we should be uh, or that we're accustomed to listening to often. It's, 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 a, it's an attribute of God that, that we really don't like. It's an attribute of God that we kind of want to brush to the side and kind of forget about. However, this culture has kind of given us that kind of view of God or that low view of God where we expect to only hear the good about God and about his love and about his grace and about his mercy. I love singing these songs that we just sang. It puts, it puts us into perspective. We, we're low creatures that need a forgiving God. We are a sinful creation that needs to be forgiven by a great God. And, and that's kind of the perspective that we want to always maintain in our church and even in our lives to understand that God is good, to understand that God is love, to understand that God is graceful, to understand that God is merciful, but God also executes his justice. God also executes his judgment. And the book of Hosea has given us this taste of, of God's judgment, like like never before, and we see it through the signs of the naming of these children. It's even further pushed as these kids are named, and we, we see God's justice being developed. So every time we read a name in the book of Hosea, we saw it in the beginning verses with the kings, but then these children are named to show and to give us the sign of God's judgment on his people. And just to recap, last week we talked about Jezreel, which not necessarily the name or the meaning of the name was important, but the fact of what it recalled. Remembering where, uh, what happened at Jezreel, which is important, kind of what God is going to do to Israel. Uh, then we saw the other name of the daughter, which was Luruama, which meant not loved or not pitied or not mercy. Or no mercy will be shown on her. So that just goes to show how this is incrementing. We're, we're, God's bringing judgment through Jezreel, by naming of Jezreel. God's showing that he is no longer going to be merciful upon his creation through Luruama. And now we're going to get to another section in these verses where he's going to give us a third name where we see the intensification get even bigger when we see this in context. So let's read. Why don't we start off in verse... And we'll read through verse 9. Remember, the section that we've been studying is verses 3 through 9. So we're in, in the final section here in verses 8 through 9. And it says this. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people. For you are not my people and I am not your God. So here it is. We have the third sign of judgment, and this is the sign of the people being called not my people. And we'll get into that 
in a little bit. But let me just go into a little bit of a description here of what's happening. Here we have a time frame, and every time we see a time, time mentioned in the Bible, it's worth investigating what that means. We see in verse 8 that she had weaned no mercy or luruama, which we had talked about last, last week, um, and then she bore a son. What does the word weaned mean? In, in our modern context, it's, uh, it's that time where the mother no longer nurses her child. In our context, the mother nurses a child roughly between six to about a year and a half, sometimes a little bit more. But in old ancient times, this weaning took between three to five years. I mean, they didn't have formula back then. They didn't have all these, uh, you know, the little Gerber jars with the nasty looking uh, vomit food that you give your children. Uh, they didn't have that back then. So the weaning process was a little bit longer. It was three to five years. So why is that important? Why does that matter? When, and why is it even described here? If you look at verse 8, that's the only thing that's of importance in that verse. It's that she weaned her son, I mean her daughter Lurama, or no mercy, for, for that time, and then she bore another son. So this is important for, for several aspects. And I want to just give you guys a little bit of this of this importance in time because you have to understand that during this time, if it's three to five years, this is after one child was born, which could possibly be one to two years, and then another child being born, the daughter, which was named No Mercy, it's another year, plus the weaning process, which was another three to five years. So altogether we have about eight years in between this mix, and then she's going to bear another child, and then another son's going to be born. So altogether, we're talking about roughly 10 years in this little uh, picture here that we have in this, in this little chapter. We have a 10-year a, a, a process going on here. So what's going on with this? What does this mean? It, it just reminds us once again that Hosea the prophet is a real man that has to live in front of the eyes of a people roughly for these 10 years. And, and to bring more insult to injury, during these 10 years, although it's not described in this passage, but we're going to be reading it in chapters 2 and chapters 3 and, and so on, during these 10 years, he is suffering from a wife who is continuously unfaithful to him. From a wife that is whoring after other men while she is giving birth to this man's children. It's been three to five years plus an extra five years of the other kids, total of ten years that they've been in this marriage and things have not gotten any better. It's not like the marriage has gotten better. And if you remember... If you really understand what we were talking about last week, it's that this metaphor of marriage between Hosea and his wife Gomer is an exact replica of what's going on with God in Israel. So for these 10 years, things have been getting worse with, with Hosea and Gomer. It's exactly the same as things getting worse with God and Israel. But not only has it been 10 years with God in Israel, this has been a 1,500-year process that things have been gradually getting worse and worse and worse. But then what again does this represent too? 
not only the process and the length of time, but it's the fact that God, through the prophet Hosea and his marriage, is demonstrating once more this loving kindness, this long-suffering of love for this woman. Hosea is showing how God loves his people and how God is patient with his people through these 10 years of living with an unfaithful wife. Now, we can, we can kind of separate ourselves a little bit from the, that context because it's a, it's a long time ago. But it's still the same feeling as if you were to marry somebody who was continually unfaithful for, to you. Can, can you survive a marriage where your partner is continually unfaithful to you? Can you go 10 years? Let's say if we're going to put this down between three to five years. Can you go three to five years suffering and living through a marriage that is continuously unfaithful? Would you be able to go through that if your husband or your wife was continuously cheating on you and, and committing for adultery with other people? That's a tough question to answer. That's three to five years. That's not a one-time thing. Many, many uh, marriages nowadays, they, they want to divorce immediately after one, one, uh, one adulterous relationship. They want a separation. They want to get divorced, and they want to leave that other person. And you, and you understand why, because you, you've gotten betrayed. I know there's a lot of young people here, but the married people understand what that means, that, that heart of, of living, of, of standing at the altar with somebody and giving your vows and saying, I will be faithful to you for the rest of my life. And in that moment that you get betrayed, it's heartbreaking. It destroys the person. And it only happens one time in most cases. But can you imagine Hosea living with this for 10 years? Him loving his wife, giving his all to his wife, and she turning his back on him, going after other men. And the fact is that Hosea knew what was going on. That makes things worse. Hosea sees what's going on, but yet his call is to obedience to God, and he goes through it. But that intensification, that, that tension that you feel, that anger that you feel, you, I feel it. You and we'll, we'll, we'll both feel that. Like, Hosea, leave the girl, man. Leave her. Abandon her. Go get married with somebody that's worthy of marriage. Don't keep messing around with this girl. Just You knew what you were getting into. Just kind of give it up already. But we feel that tension, and Hosea is there faithful to his covenantal marriage. He pledged faithfulness, and Hosea not only pledged faithfulness to his wife, but he pledged faithfulness to his God. And that feel, that tension that you get, is the same tension we are going to see between God and Israel. And that, again, is why this is so important that we get the other side of the coin, the other side of God that we, that we so often neglect in our, in our comfortable modern culture where we don't understand why God is angry or we don't understand why God should get angry or we don't understand why God should bring judgment. But the facts are evident. His people have 
abandoned him and have left him and have broken their covenant. They have separated themselves from God and now he will separate himself from his people. Does God divorce Israel? I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. Does God get a divorce with Israel? If Hosea and Gomer represent the marriage between God and Israel, and at the moment we see that Hosea does not divorce Israel, I mean, or, or Gomer, do we see or do we ever get a glimpse of God in this unfaithful marriage, in this unholy matrimony, get a divorce from his people? I want, to, I want you to keep that in mind as we go through this because we're going to answer that towards the end of this segment. But let's keep going in verse 9. So I just wanted you guys to feel the, the time there. I wanted you to understand what it meant to be weaned, uh, what the child meant, uh, the time frame of weaning a child. It was three to five years plus the other children. So we got almost a 10-year gap of this infidelity in marriage. Okay, so that's the tension. I want you guys to feel that because that's what's going on here. That's what God is doing with his people. That's how it's going. That's how it's happening with his people. So in verse 9, we get this final act of judgment. The first act of judgment was represented in the son Jezreel. Remember that? And what was Jezreel represent, a representation of? The bloodshed that God will bring on his people. And God will bring that in near time, in the near future. And it happened as it happened, as we had mentioned, it happened 20 years later when, when uh, Samaria, the, the, the capital of Israel, was taken over. And that was the proof of what God was doing through Jezreel. And then the second sign that we read was the second naming of the daughter, which was Luruama. He is withholding his mercy now. He is stepping away from, from divine protection and love for his people. And now this third sign, which is the climax of the setting, when he names the son, not my people. Verse 9, let's read it again. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. The Hebrew, some of your Bibles may have, is uh, they, they transliterated it to lo ami, not my people. Now, if, if you have some kind of Bible knowledge or some kind of Bible reference to the Old Testament, you've understood that since the beginning, since Abraham's time, God has chosen a people for himself. Do you guys remember that? God has chosen for himself a people. He has separated Abraham from all the other nations. He has divinely, sovereignly chosen this small group of people to be his. If you guys remember what Genesis 17, verse 7 and 8 says, I'm going to read it to you. And it says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. This is God talking to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. I'm going to establish this everlasting covenant with you. And then in verse 8, he says, and I will give to you and to your offspring you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Here is God picking, choosing, electing a people and promising to be their God. They're going to be my people and I'm going to be their God. 
Well, hold up. What does Hosea verse 9 say? You are not my people. And then it says, I am not your God. Man, here, we got a, here we got some contradiction going on. We, we got we to gotta figure this stuff out. Because then it intensifies in the book of Exodus when we meet this man named Moses. And God says clearly to Moses in Exodus chapter 6 verse 7, I will take you to be my people. Hear God again. My people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. You feel that? Here it is again. God saying, you will be my people and I will be your God. And finally, in Leviticus, when he, when he elaborates the, the requirements of the law of holy living, he says in Leviticus 26, and I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And this, is, this one's very important because this is in the context of Leviticus. Leviticus is the detailed description of the law. And more than anything, the book of Leviticus is important because it teaches the people how to be holy. And what does that mean again? Holy means you're separate from the nations. And what does that mean? It means that you are separated for him. So here we have God in Hosea verse 9 saying, you are not my people, and I am not your God. How do we reconcile this, this what seems to be contradictory? It's a tension that we have to face here when God says, I will establish my covenant with you. I will be your God forever. You will be my people forever. And now we've gotten to the point of judgment because Israel has gone astray. Now the promises have been denied. Has God divorced Israel? Keep that in the back of your mind. Is it a divorce then? Can you imagine this? I mean, I hate, I hate to use myself as an example, but I'll use it just so you guys can feel the weight. Imagine I got a divorce. How, that would... That would it doesn't matter whose fault it would be. If, it, if I could blame it all on my wife, right, which I probably would have been, oh, it's all her fault. And I could blame it all completely on her. But how would you guys feel about me getting a divorce? Or, or not myself, maybe somebody that you guys respect a lot, or we can't even say the president because we kind of expect that. Right? But, but someone that you guys, like, really respect and admire, and then you feel like, oh, they got a divorce. Wow, man, I guess no one is perfect, right? Well, here we have God with Israel. Did God get a divorce with Israel? Is God here divorcing his people? It would seem that this is the case. He has left all his ab obligations to her. He's left her on his own, on her own. He has separated from her for a while. All because she has already broken the covenant but here's the the key thing this is what what's important here it's not that we're going to centralize our our understanding on just one chapter we got to keep reading the book of Hosea chapter 2 and chapter 3 come very handy when we want to understand this divorce because in fact God doesn't divorce Israel here here is 
the goodness of our God again. In the midst of judgment, in the midst of this anguish and separation with his people, in the midst, he himself is calling them, not my people. He still does not divorce Israel. Does God have every right to divorce her? Yes. Who has broken the covenant, God or Israel? Who? Israel. God doesn't break his covenant. God never breaks his covenant. God is always faithful to his covenant. Time and time again. And so it would imply at the same time as Hosea is living this out 10 years of being cheated on continuously, Hosea doesn't divorce his wife. What happens is a temporary separation. You'll read that when we get to chapter 2. You'll, you'll understand the separation and then you'll understand this betrothal again from for God to Israel. God never remarries Israel. That's what you guys have to get and understand. God never remarries her. He just renews his covenant. See, it's important to have friends that have PhDs when you know, when uh, you, you come across difficult passages in the Bible. And one of our friends of ours and Henry's has a PhD in Hebrew. He teaches at our school. And he says this about God's divorce or what it seems to be God's divorce. He says, this is a sign of God's relationship with Israel. They are still in covenant. Here, that's what you guys have to understand. That's what we all have to get here. This is still a covenant. Even though the woman, or in, in Hosea's case, Gomer, or Israel has been unfaithful to the covenant, and she has broken the covenant, what's made her separate herself from God, has been her sin, has been her continuous looking after other gods, even though that's happening and the covenant seems to be broken on her end or on Israel's end, this is still a covenant. And then he says, he will bring her back to himself and redeem her. For a time they will be estranged. That is a reference to exile and temporal consequences that her sin has brought. So when we read about Israel... In exile, receiving punishment because God has taken away his mercy and his love and has separated himself, that moment of exile is a temporary separation. But then God's going to bring her back to him. This is the goodness of God. God has every legal, even legal right according to the law of Moses to divorce Israel. God had every right to do so. None of us would be angry. None of us would have, would have if, if that was the case, we would have read it and been like, well, yeah, we understand. After 1,500 years of, of, of just continual downfall, we understand, God. But that's not the case. God remains faithful to his covenant. God remains faithful to an unfaithful people. God remains faithful to a people that do not love him anymore. And you, have, you, you, can't, you can't separate this, this Hosea-Gomer imagery because you, you see in Hosea 
you can feel the pain. Maybe you've felt that before in, in, as, as, a, as a wedding, I mean, as a married couple or as a boyfriend-girlfriend couple, whatever it was. Maybe you felt that pain of, of being forsaken. Maybe you felt that pain of, of, of being cheated on. And, and, and you can see it in Hosea's eyes. His wife doesn't love him. His wife loves others. And loves going after others. And loves seeking others and receiving gifts from others. His wife loves the warmth of the bed of others. And not her own husband. That's the pain that Hosea has to take. And that's why this imagery is so important for us. Because we, we, we can understand it now. It's like, oh, this is gut check. This is like, no, I can't believe this is happening. But yet, this is how God shows his representation between Israel. This is what God seems to be receiving and, and feeling at the same time. This abandonment from his people. They have left and ceased to love God. But we can all answer, has God ceased to love Israel? And we all say, no. You guys shouldn't be confused here. No, he hasn't. He hasn't ceased to love Israel. That's the goodness of God, and that's the grace of God, and that's his love that endures forever. But yet, we get the balance, and during these namings, it's God's judgment over his people. So for this moment in time, this temporary separation, God is withdrawing not only his love and mercy, but he's withdrawing his divine protection because they are no longer his people. He is not going to be their God. And this is where we come across a fourth name. Now, if you read it in verse 9, you may not catch it immediately. But verse 9 says, And the Lord said, Call his name not my people. That's the son. That's the third son. I will not, he will not be my people. Or Loami. And then after the comma, For you are not my people, and I am not your God. This is the fourth name. It's interesting because in this fourth name, the Hebrew says, I am not your I am. Do you remember how God represents himself to Moses? Early on, Exodus chapter 3, Moses is afraid. I don't, how am I going to be the mouthpiece? How am I going to tell the people? How, who am I going to introduce you to? The, how am I going to introduce you to the people? How am I going to say your name? And God says, you will tell them, I am. That's my name. I am who I am. That's the name God first identified with his people. That's God's introduction to his people. He said, I am. That's my name. You will know me as the great I am. But in this context, he withdraws that name. The same construction from the Hebrew word I am is found here negated with the low or not I am. So what it's saying is you will not be your people and I will not be the God I first introduced you to as myself. I am. I will not be that I am to you. I'm not I am. And so we get this fourth name in God. 
And we get this notion that names have become a big deal so far in these first opening nine verses. These names have demonstrated to us the, the, the importance of God over his people. If you remember what Deuteronomy and Numbers said, these people were always going to be under the name of God. And, and I want you to think about this. One day in the near future, every knee will bow and confess whose name? That Jesus Christ is Lord. There is a naming at the end of our destinies, at the end of our time here on earth, that we will all confess one more name. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you believe in, if you believe in God or if you don't believe in God, you will confess the name of Jesus Christ. That's just how we were designed to live. That's why when we enter into this new covenant, Paul says you confess the name of Christ. Confess him as Savior. And I don't want to ask, but I'll ask now, have you confessed the name of Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Because this meaning of names is important. God says in, in Deuteronomy, all the people of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall fear you. The people of God were to be known by the name of God. This was their name. This is the people, they were going to live according, underneath the name, and everyone around them were going to fear them because of the name of God, not because of who they were. Number says, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. The blessings that were going to be poured on, given to the people of God, were coming by his name. By the name of God. This naming is important. And God was going to govern and protect his people and bless his people by giving him his name. And friends, this is a gut check moment for us because as God withheld and withdrew his name from Israel, what is implied in Hosea and Gomer's marriage? Hosea is withdrawing his love, his mercy. It doesn't say he stops loving her, but he's withdrawing his mercy and his name. And you got to remember, in ancient times, it was the, the husband that, that, that had the, the control and the rule over the house, and everything was under his name. So, so when the woman was outside of the protection of the man, she was on her own. And she was seen by everybody else. Oh, look it, now she's going into that guy's house. Oh, now she's in that guy's house. Oh, now she's in that guy's house. She has no more protection from her husband. Hosea has removed himself from this relationship for a time. Now we could speculate what is happening here, but there is an eager uh, yearning for a return. During this time, Hosea, like God, as we will read in chapters 2 and chapters 3, is awaiting repentance and awaiting return. And that friends, is gut check time. 
This is why this book is so important. It's not just that it's an Old Testament book, but it just gets us to understand gut check. Is God awaiting my repentance? Is God awaiting my my calling on his name again? Or have I lived in such a way that I have withdrawn myself completely from God? And at times I've said, man, God has left me. Man, God has abandoned me. I feel like God is no longer with me. I feel like God doesn't exist because of everything that I'm going through. Everything around me has fallen apart. That's God's fault. There is no God. Is, it, is that the case? Has God walked away from us? Has God abandoned us? Or have we first abandoned him? That's gut check. Evaluation. But what we've learned so far, up until this point, of judgment from God is two things. First of all, Israel is guilty. Here's what you got to understand. That this judgment that is coming upon them, these three names equal three types of judgment that, that are coming upon them for a certain amount of time. We have to understand, first of all, that it's Israel's guilt and fault that this judgment is upon them. They've been unfaithful and they're, and they're uh, uh, they've, they've left God. They've been unfaithful to God. And then Yahweh addresses them, or God addresses them, through Hosea and withholds his mercy and withholds his love. But why does he address them? Because they have no longer sought for God. This is where it's going to get really good in the next couple of weeks. So I hope that you're still here the next couple of weeks. Instead of saying, oh man, this judgment stuff. I'm going to go somewhere where they make me feel happy because I'm a little bit depressed every time I leave here. Well, you should be depressed if you're in sin. You should be depressed if you're unfaithful to God. But you should be hopeful that God still awaits your return. But anyway, yeah, there's a couple of churches down the street, so you have a lot of options. But if you come back, you're going to learn and feel real, feel the realness of this. In these, in these two chapters, in these next two, two to three chapters, you're going to feel the realness of what, what's going on. They've left God. They have gotten away from his covenant. They're looking for fidelity in other people. Their children are dependent on other men. And their kingship and freedom are all dependent on other people. Oh, you're going you're gonna to see that God has provided so much goodness for his people? And they are seeking that goodness somewhere else. That's the guilt of Israel. And then second, God's judgment is a consequence for this attitude. As Israel seeks for relationships elsewhere and love from somewhere else, the covenant has been broken by them. God still does not dissolve his covenant. Although he will withdraw his mercy and bring somewhat of a dissolution to the covenant, he will bring judgment, but this judgment is for one thing only, for their return. Sometimes we ask, why do bad things happen to me? Or why am I going through this? Why, God, why? Why, why do I have to suffer so much? Could it be 
that God is bringing you back? Could it be that God is trying to bring you back? And this, is it a response to your rebellion? Is it in response to your rebellion? So this is the God that we have in Hosea. And unfortunately for some, he is still the God that we have today. He is not the God that other popular or motivational people want you to hear and listen to. He is not that teddy bear guy with a heart that says, I love you. It's not him. He's a God that will show love, but will also show judgment and justice because God is true and just. And his people were called by his name, separated for his name. They are to live holy because God is holy. So that's our responsibility to the covenant. We always have to realize that our responsibility to the covenant is to be a people separated for the name of God. That's what Hebrews tells us. That's what Paul tells us. We are called to be separate from the world because we are his. But if we are his, we can rest assured that God is always going to be faithful. But we can also rest assured that he will be judgment. He will bring judgment upon our lives too if we separate ourselves from the covenant. So with that, my friends, we're going to dig deep into these next couple of chapters next, in the next couple of months and our prayers that you learn from the book of Hosea. Maybe you've never read the book of Hosea. I urge you to read these 14 chapters this week. And next week, make sure you are here because my good friend Henry will be bringing the word to close out the chapter. So be ready for that. And with that, let's all stand up. And let's, let's bow our heads and pray. Father, as we've gone through life many a time, thinking that our ways have, are greater than your ways and thinking that our, that our ways have, have propelled us to the greatness of our life. But Lord, we've been just driving away from you. We've been setting aside our covenant obligation to love you and to live holy. And Lord, as we've read and as we've learned through these, through these brief verses in chapter 1, we know that you are a God of love and of God of mercy and of God of long-suffering and a God of patience. But there comes a time when you want to call us to repentance. Father, I pray that you give us discernment to understand when you are doing that in our lives. So that we are not tempted like the world to say, there is no God during our trials. There is no God during those moments of divine judgment but that we realize that it is God calling us back to him. And Father, that we all realize and know that one day 
Every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. You are Lord over this church. You are Lord over all. King, you are king above your people. And we are happy and we are humbled to be governed by such a king. Help us every day from now to the end of our time to live according to your will. In Jesus' name. We all say amen.